I'm Christy Bourne. And I'm Rainier Wild. Together, we're investigating the mysteries of love and relating. We get gritty and dig deep into why love is the tie that binds us together. And also drives us to our knees. This is our story. This is your story. This is Love Like Hell. My favorite book in the whole house growing up was the photo book of my parents' wedding. I used to love thumbing through every single page, seeing the pictures of my mom getting ready for the wedding and her mom helping her and her friends gathered around her and my dad. My dad looked so young with all of his his buddies there to cheer him on. It was like the beginning of a fairy tale. I loved turning each page and seeing her in her white dress. And as I grew up, well, the culture around me held the same vision. As a little girl growing up in the church, I would see these teenagers grow up and and go to college or meet a boy, and they would come back and they would get married. And we would all help create a ceremony. And she would walk down the aisle in this beautiful white dress. There was flowers. It was like a princess. And the story kept evolving as I got older and in college. Oh my gosh, I probably was in 10 weddings in college. One of those bridesmaids. I had every dress of every color. Weddings. They were such a big deal. They were such a fairy tale. A beautiful one. Isn't that interesting uh, about the immense place or role the ceremony has in our imaginations of what a marriage is that that you know you as a child uh, grew up knowing what a marriage was it was a wedding a marriage was a ceremony where people looked good and committed to some course of right action where they said some kind of special words. There was a hell of a lot of enthusiasm, excitement, and it was over very, very quickly. Yeah, I found that I was a sucker for weddings. And I think often people really are. There's excitement. It's bringing people together. It's friends and family and free drinks, right? And dancing if you're lucky. I mean, growing up for me, there wasn't drinks and there wasn't dancing in the weddings that I went to, (laughs) Right. right? But the idea was there that it was a big party and you knew that it was a special party. Like it should really only happen once that you should have this party in your life, by the way. And everybody showed up for that one wedding that you would get. Right. You know, different traditions have different ideals. I remember the very first time I 
went to a wedding of people who had been divorced before. I know, I know. They had been divorced before. I was a young child. You weren't as enthusiastic for them. In fact, you should control your enthusiasm just a little bit. You shouldn't be quite... There was a certain kind of hushed reverence to the second timers that wasn't there the first time. I mean, like you you were thrilled the first time, but the second time you wanted to be a little more serious was the idea I got from mom and dad. Oh my goodness. I have this memory of someone. It was their second wedding growing up and the conversation, and I'm embarrassed to say this, that I heard was, should she be wearing white? Oh my gosh. Shouldn't it be an off-white color since this was the second time around? (laughs) I felt like at the time I knew that probably wasn't very cool, but I was listening to adults talk about it. That just makes me feel sick thinking about it. Right. I mean, there was this, again, pressure that this is the one, this is going to last. And of course, this gets back to our previous conversation, right? That, that you know, in a, in a culture and a value system that values one man, one woman for one lifetime, and it has a lot of reasons structurally for valuing that, whether that's the state or stability or, or perhaps, you know, this moralizing story. Um, there's a lot of pressure on that. And so when people aren't doing that thing, oh my gosh, it reminds me of a, of a former employer I used to have. And he was Greek Orthodox and uh, he had been married three times. And he told me about the Greek Orthodox Church because I was a little confused. I didn't understand because, you know, of course I knew that obviously in the evangelical world of Christians, the Protestants, you could marry multiple times, but it was, you know, it was looked down upon, but you could certainly do it. Uh, But in the Roman Catholics, you know, you had to have the marriage annulled by the Pope, you know, to even imagine marrying again. So I was curious about the Orthodox, like, what's their tradition? And he says, well, it's a three strikes you're out policy. They don't say that openly, but that's what's going on. And here's how it works. The first marriage, very big, celestial. It's like you're getting married in heaven. (laughs) The second marriage, it's a little less. You don't spend as much money on it. You only invite close friends. The third marriage, it's just you and the priest, and he has a very serious talk to you. (laughs) (laughs) Like, this is your last shot, kid. Oh, my goodness. But it's it's true. It's we don't have a lot of structures for understanding relationships and how they change and adapt. And oftentimes, those f- initial relationships and marriages, we sus- suspend belief within them. And so, in that structure, is we're all cheering for it. And then there's the wedding, and everybody leaves. And what about the marriage part? Yeah, it really does, in fact, remind me a bit of um, a, a bit of the same kind of scenario as a, a dear friend of mine whose father died of cancer rather suddenly. And they were a part of an of a intentional community, a community of people who had dedicated their lives to each other. And the community really showed up very strongly while he was dying of cancer. And certainly at his deathbed, very, very strong outpouring of love and affection. But about six months later, uh, the the widow 
came to the community and was very, very upset with them. And my friend was telling me about his mother being very, very upset. And she said, you know how to do ceremonies well, but you don't know how to do life very well, do you? Like they knew how to, they knew how to call an ending but they didn't really know how to take care of someone in the long term. And I think that's a lot like a marriage, isn't it? We know how to do weddings. We know how to do beginnings. We know how to do the, we know how to promise each other things. We know how to manifest love. We don't know how to live with the thing we've manifested. Wow. That is a really powerful story. That picture of that person saying, Hey, we can memorialize things, we can celebrate things, but can we live in an in-between space? So much more difficult to do. One of the things that I'm remembering is uh, in my college life that many people got married quite early, like yourself. And that was something that happened. Is like there wasn't a lot of containers for understanding. When I grow up, I guess I get married. When I like someone a lot... And then it turns to love. I guess I get married. 18, 19, 20. Now, today we're seeing people get married a lot later in life with other possibilities. But for you and I growing up, it was not too abnormal to have, you know, people get married quite early. Yeah. And of course, you know, this isn't because we're a hundred years old or anything. We came from a, <laughs> a particular like tradition, right? Where they valued um, that. But like <laughs> the reality is, you know, a lot of uh, our society prior to the last 25 years, in fact, has been, you marry quite early. You marry quite young. In fact, that seems like an alien landscape to me. Now that I think about it, certainly in my own life, I got married the first time at 19 years old. That sounds extraordinarily ludicrous to think about. We've got a 17-year-old child. I can't imagine two years him being ready to commit his life to someone. And what's he committing his life to after all? What is that, that child marriage of 25 years ago that would have been so socially acceptable or 30 years ago or 50 years ago or, or a whole lifetime of human experiences across the last 8,000 years? What were they in fact committing to? And of course, we've talked about this idea of bringing together kinship models, but the modern vision of marriage brings together so many things under one house that have never lived under one house except for the last 250 years. Not only is there this thing called love, which is a very siloed, individualed, privileged experience that is rooted in some kind of emotional outpouring, right? As, as, as we think of it, um, there's love, there's sex. We're dependent on this one person for sex. There's finances right? We're dependent on one another financially. There's social connections, right? Who we're friends with, who we're not friends with. Now we're conjoined. We're, a th we're an item. Uh, we have one bed. You know, 25 years ago, two beds was quite common. Now if people say, yeah, we've got two beds, you kind of look at them and go, what? Like, what's going on with you? Right? But we used to. Well, okay. So now even our sleeping is conjoined everything, our families, our businesses, our identities, all of this is now 
in a crowded house. It wasn't always that way. We've talked about that. In fact, this is quite a new innovation. And I'm going to offer something. I'm going to say that a experiment of 250 years might not be working out too well. As you're talking about that, it makes me think, wow, actually, we're probably doing better than we think we are at 50% divorce rate, right? We, yeah. We're combining all these aspects of our life. Just combining families is enough, right? Now we're combining, you know, finances, sex life, expectations, friends. That list is as you were talking, I'm just grinning like, oh my gosh, maybe we're doing better than we think we are because we go from an independent or at least outside of our family of origin home to create a new one. Mm. And the ability to tolerate that distress, the ability to work through issues, the ability to be a self in relationship to someone else, those are pretty big feats. And no wonder why conflict arises and insecurity and infidelity. It's not a wedding. It's a life you're saying yes to, and you're not even sure what you're saying yes to. Right. The, the, the agreements that we're making are really, um, they're agreements that haven't existed culturally until very, very recent times. These expectations that we put on each other are very, very modern in their, their dilemma. And they're, they're trying to solve problems that actually are already quickly slipping away. They're already not necessarily our problems anymore, which is why, you know, when we talk about marriage, our version of marriage today doesn't exactly look like, well, what our grandparents would have thought marriage was, right? What, what we might consider committed, grounded unions of this day and age is already changing. What do I mean by that? Well, again, you and I just talked about this idea of when we were little kids, again, not 75 years ago, but just a few years ago, when we were little kids, it was very strange to go to a second marriage, right? A wedding of someone who's getting married who had been previously divorced. Today, serial monogamy, when someone says they're monogamous, you almost always assume they're a serial monogamist. They didn't meet and marry someone when they were 16 and now they're 60. They met someone when they were 16 and then they met someone at 19 and then at 24 and then maybe at 35 and then maybe at 45 and then maybe now they're 60 and they've met someone new. This seems almost common, but again, to our grandparents, oh my God, a life built on that kind of marriage or that kind of monogamy, that would have been extraordinarily challenging to wrap their minds around. I had an uncle who got married at 80 and my grandparents, it was my grandma's brother. And I remember going to that wedding and thinking, I think it was his third one as well. I remember going to that wedding and thinking like, oh, this seems so strange. And it really isn't that strange. And the lifespan of someone who's 80 years old and they're getting married for the third time, I look at that today and think, good job. Mm. Still open to love, still chasing those types of things, still have a sex life, right? There's, and companionship. 
but we don't have a lot of containers for understanding different types of relationships, relationships over time and how they evolve. You know, you and I, where we started, like the question was, what do you need to feel more married? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So the thing that I have learned over time is the acceptance that things are going to change. The things we say yes to at the beginning, hopefully we have openness in our hearts to say, you know, we're going to change over time too. Is there space for that? And a lot of times people aren't often open to the ever shifting changes. When I think of the forces that created that question that I asked you so long ago, probably the single greatest contributor was actually the fact that I had had a starter marriage. I had had a previous relationship that greatly informed how I thought and how I didn't think about marriage. It's my wedding day. I'm 19 years old. My father, a well-seasoned minister, will be performing my wedding. But I won't let him have any chance to shame me or to embarrass me. I'll write the script of how I want him to speak. And I'll tell him to follow it word for word. He does so. The music is beautiful, drawn from the recently released films of Braveheart and The Gladiator. Candlelit, my best friends from youth group, junior high and high school, are my groomsmen. A few notable missing faces, perhaps, people who couldn't make the trip. And there she was, this girl I had known since she was 17, walking down the aisle as the candles flickered and popped. My father, now speaking the words I had written, people cheering, our exit music, smashing pumpkins. Today is the greatest day I've ever known. Billy Corgan sings. And I feel that way. At the reception, people will tell silly stories. People will make toasts. They will remember our childhood, which looking back, was only a few years earlier. They will wish us well. We will smile. We will celebrate. There will be no drinking. There will be no dancing. But there will be hugging and goodwill. And then I will take my new wife, who is still 18, not yet 19. And I will get in the car and she will pack the last few things from her parents' house. 
I will shut the trunk and I will pull out of the driveway in the only house she has ever known and she will erupt in tears. And I don't know why. I put the car in park and I ask what's wrong. And she doesn't know. She doesn't know what to say. And neither do I. Isn't this marriage? Isn't this supposed to be happy? Isn't this everything we've waited for? So why does it feel like a light switch just got turned off? Well, I want to know more about that. I haven't heard that story. I can imagine what's going through everyone's minds. I guess I want to know what's going through yours as you're sitting there and you go from this state of celebration and newness to driving away with your new wife and there's a break. Yeah, I mean, it was extraordinarily confusing. I think I was a pretty empathetic kid. I I was recognizing that she was, you know, leaving her family. And in fact, we would move. Um, she was from Canada. I was from the United States. She would move from Canada to the United States. So, I mean, realistically, she was leaving everything behind. And I think there was a lot of gravity to that. It was the only home she had ever known. But I think it was more than that because uh, the reality was it felt, it felt like to me that way I just, I just had described it there as um, a switch getting flipped. I really felt like all of the intensity and the passion and the, the pushing towards this moment, suddenly the, the air was let out of the balloon. It felt deflating. Yeah, and those moments you're trying to hold her and hold the moment, and you're just a kid. Like when you said that, I was an empathetic and I was going to say, kid, (laughs) right? Right. (laughs) Uh, And I just can't help but think to to say like, no one told me what to do next. What do I do next now? We're in the car. We have it packed up. My wife is crying like, no one told me what to do. We had the wedding. Now what? What does this mean for us? Right. Because again, very much like you, I knew how to wedding. Right. I knew how to do that. But what is marriage? I remember going to some kind of premarital counselor. And of course, he was coming from a particular framework. And the only thing I really remember from that whole discourse about what is marriage is this analogy that at the time I hated and now I kind of get, which is this idea of the love bank. And love is like a bank. You make deposits and you make withdrawals. And if you make too many withdrawals and you haven't made enough deposits, you go bankrupt. And now I'm like, oh, that's genius. Yeah, no, I totally get that. But then I just thought that was obnoxious. That's the one takeaway I had, I think. Yeah, and we weren't, we weren't reading books about marriage. We weren't investigating those places. I really don't think that our parents were talking to us about, well, this is what it looks like and feels like. Honestly, for me, when I saw my parents, they didn't argue a bicker at all, which is really interesting that I didn't really see a lot of conflict. 
So I kind of assumed that you shouldn't have a lot of conflict in marriage. Kind of wish I would have saw more so I know how to, you know, work through that. But there wasn't a set of rules or thoughts around it. And so you plunged right in. And again, I'm going to say you did pretty good. You did pretty good. You made it pretty far for not having a lot of skill. Right. Well, and again, this is sort of a job that is on the job training, a lot like life. Um, You learn as you go, but also you do so in this way that we've been talking about, which is one man, one woman, or, or, or perhaps it's now collectively expanded beyond that to include, you know, multiple parties or whatever those things are. But the truth is, it's still incredibly siloed. The experience is very, very small. You don't have a village supporting you. You're not the pitaha who, you know, are surrounding you and encouraging you or heckling you one way or the other. You don't have a a brother's meeting or a sister's circle taking you aside and kind of educating you or instructing you. Uh, You don't have the grandmothers and the aunties and the grandfathers and the elders you don't have any of that. You haven't married for kinship at all. You've married for love. You've married to try and capture in a jar this firefly that's blinking and it's bright, but it dies so quickly, especially as you try and capture it. And in that particular situation that you're talking about, There's this sense that if I have questions, if something's wrong, if I don't know sexually what to do or how to please her, you know, how to show up for him or how to work through finances or if something isn't going quite well, there's actually a sense of shame like you should know and don't bring up things that are hard to the community if you have them, your family, your friends. There's almost this instinct to go inward instead of saying, ah, mayday, help, what do I do here? And so we often silo ourselves uh, in our own shame thinking that people will know something's wrong if I bring something up. Right. I, 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 I look at uh, that, that first marriage for me. And yes, we, we, we made through, we made beautiful children together. Uh, we got along in life. And I also think we skated on the fumes of a wedding. So by the time you and I are in our courtship and the divorce has kind of sobered me, and here I am standing with this new person who I wish to engage in life with and who I know I want to share a very special connection with, one thing I'm pretty sure of it's not about the wedding. And so I ask you, what do you need to feel more married? Which is my way of saying, I'm not sure we need much of a ceremony, but I think we need to know what we're doing here. There's a lot of wisdom that you glean from those experiences. And for me, it was my first marriage not my first relationship. I was coming into our relationship with a daughter. And so it did mean something different to me than it meant to you. And it was an in-between space. I felt that you said, hey, what do you need? It is more than this. And there's something here too. 
a symbol of us moving forward together in life. So what do you need? And that question put me back on my heels. I I thought like, I don't know. Because what? Because it was so automatic. Those stories of that little girl, I already kind of had a vision, right? Of that white dress, of what it would look like. And it was really helpful for me to think, those weren't actually the things that are going to be lasting. What are the lasting things that you want? Yeah. What are the lasting values and and visions here? And of course, like one of the things we have to acknowledge in this shifting modern landscape is that long-term unions are built on shifting sands. We're in constant flux. We're in constant change. And even this idea of bringing two people together, well, it's not really, not really very realistic. As we've already just kind of said, you're bringing families together, and kinship and financial ways of being in the world and tax benefits and the interests of the state. And you're doing all kinds of things and bringing it together. There's more voices than just yours in the house. And all of those voices are pushing you and changing dynamically every day. And so the conversation, because that's what it really is, must be something that you engage on an ongoing basis. Like, what are we doing here? What is this about today? Because I think that's where people get surprised. People get surprised because they go, oh, remember that wedding that we had? The marriage? (laughs) It's not like that anymore. Well, of course not, idiot. Of course it's not like that anymore. But we're all kind of idiots, right? In some ways, because it's like, I hear you saying that and there's part of me that says, oh yeah, we all think again that we're exceptional. Like other people that works for them, but for us, we're going to be the same as we were, even though of course we change and of course things shift. But you and I, you and I, we won't be doing that thing. And so we set ourselves up for the inability to be flexible. Mm -hmm. And what we really need is the ability to look at each other and say, I agree to this today and tomorrow when we wake up, we're going to agree again. We're going to have continual conversations about who we are in life and where we're headed. This thing we say today is important, but tomorrow that conversation is even more important. So what then are the guarantees that this is going to work? Are there guarantees? (laughs) (laughs) But I have these ironclad vows that you gave me. Right, I have this this document that a a county elected official has stamped here. If if that doesn't mean anything, then does anything mean anything? My God, what can we count on? How I've understood it as we've kind of, you know, had a vision from a different point of view is that I want the best for you, and you in turn want the best for me, and they're no longer cages. We're not caging each other in life. We're allowing for growth and for springs. Mm. And so I think sometimes love and the initial part of connecting and marriage feels like a lockdown. (laughs) And over time I've seen, ah, we can't lock down love. There's no guarantees, right? 
I, I said not all that long ago that love should begin with a kind of acknowledgement in every agreement. This ends. Right? Whether death or divorce, this ends. Everything ends. I love the the uh, gestalt prayer. I, I say it often, um, or at least the last part of it often, but the whole of it is, I do my thing, you do your thing. I am not in this world to live up to your expectations. And you are not in this world to live up to mine. You are you, and I am I. And if by chance we find each other, it's beautiful. And if not, it can't be helped. And I love that because the reality is that doesn't just happen once. We keep on bumping into each other every day, day in and day out. And we say, who is this? Who are you? What is happening here? Who am I? And it creates the opportunity to ask that beautiful question, do I want to hitch my wagon here? Now, oh my God, can you imagine if couples everywhere um, existed in this paralyzing uncertainty, this idea of we're never certain, we don't know day to day, you, you know, what's that Beatles song? You're asking me, will our love grow? I don't know. I don't know. Stick around. It may show. I don't know. I don't know. But I love it because it's so true. You don't know. You can't arm wrestle someone into loving you. You can't bow enough or rubber stamp it enough or demand enough or prove to them that you are worthy enough. You actually have to show up and do the courageous and risky thing of saying, this is who I am. I am I. And you are you. I'm looking at you right now. I love what I see. Well, hey, why don't we talk about that thing that we've been planning on talking about for quite a while? It's called indulgence. Whoa, did you just drop the name just like that? I did. I'm so excited to talk about indulgence. I said it again. The name or like the pleasure principle? Both, perhaps. Okay, so what is indulgence? This is an eight-week digital immersion. It's about building a fireproof relationship. You'll get to work with me and Rainier. Yeah, we teach all the principles on lighting the spark, reigniting the fires of intimacy, or creating an inferno of passion. See what I did there? All the analogies right there about fire. <laughs> that was really good. Thank you. You're really good with words. For us, this isn't like haphazard. This is being intentional about the kind of relationship that you want. And we think relationships should be fiery or on fire, but not burned to the ground. Yeah. Indulgence isn't really a program. It's a way of life. And in this eight week course, which is really about self-mastery in relationship to others, you learn all kinds of skills and techniques and frameworks by which you can approach relationships if you're single being able to rekindle that spark if you're together with someone and taking good to great 
in the existing relationships you have. Yeah, so we really talk about authentic expression. We show how to show empathy and validation in relationships, how to have more curiosity and imagination, and we talk about the erotic and intimacy. You mean basically the places where relationships fall apart. Yeah, we try to enhance those places. Instead of them being a pitfall, we really want to zone in on them and say, how do we make these aspects better in relating? So this is an eight-week digital immersion. You get eight incredible on-demand videos that have fantastic content. You also get four live questions and answers with us, as well as the opportunity for for uh, bonus one-on-one meeting directly with Christy and I. This is an exciting opportunity for people who long for great connection. You also get the community of peers who are talking about our experiences and expressing what's going on in relationship. This is a wisdom community also where we learn from the experiences of one another. And I couldn't be more excited to have that. There's nothing better than having people around you that want the same thing. People that are dedicated to not just having good relationships, but having great relationships and waking up to their uh, connection in conscious ways. Relationships often fall asleep so easily. And in this program, we're saying, we're not gonna give you steps. We're gonna allow you to wake up to who you are and how you're relating to people in your life. So if you're interested in indulgence, why don't you go over to the link in the show notes here or in the bio over at Instagram uh, under Rainier Wild, and you can access the application to be a part of that. Get involved now. It is in fact a space limited situation and we want you to be a part of it. That's something that you desire to do. We really, really value this and we want you to start now. This is gonna be an amazing time starting at the end of July and going for eight weeks. Let's get on fire here. I love listening to you talk. I was noticing I was being pulled in as you were talking and uh, I have a crush on you. So that's exciting. (laughs) But one of the things in that is this idea about commitment that I, I think there's this thread that sometimes commitment feels like ownership and the, in the terms of like um, an old paradigm of marriage you're committing to me. This is a commitment um, that doesn't allow for growth and for wings and for new possibility. But commitment, and the way that I understand it today, is I'm committed to my growth and your growth. I'm committed to resolving things that come between us. I'm committed to so much more than my what what I assumed was at the beginning, like oh, we have ownership here. Actually, no, we don't. Yeah, we never did. We never did. That's a really wonderful vestige left over from our pastoralist ancestors who wanted to maintain ownership of their herds. We we keep on using the technique that they used to solve their problems (laughs) 5,000 years ago. I don't have herds anymore, right? And I don't need 37 sons, right, to war against my neighbor. As it turns out, here I am. I'm in this. 
And this is who I am today. And this is who you are today. And the things that I'm committed to, I love that. I love what you're saying as far as like the things I am intrinsically committed to today. I am committed to your well-being. I'm committed to leaning in, clearing up the things that make me want to lean out. I'm committed to this idea of you growing and of me growing, of being both fair to myself and to you. I'm also committed to helping you pack your bags should you realize that you can't grow and develop in this environment and space any longer. Does that feel scary to say today? I imagine that idea of I'm committed to packing your bags would terrify a lot of people. And as you're saying that, I'm wondering, what is that like to say that? Well, I mean, I've got this really large trip that I'm taking, you know, where I'm going to be gone for quite a while writing. And, you know, you're literally helping me pack my bags. That's true. <laughs> right? I'm buying your stuff. <laughs> you're buying my stuff. And, and, and you know, here we are. And, and I'm talking to you about the plans you're making with folks or people, you know, while I'm, while I'm gone and all these different things. We're celebrating each other's uh, relationship to the realities we'll be encountering. This trip, as an example, has really been interesting for me. Because a lot of my stuff has come up and we talk about like relational dynamics and talking to a friend, I'm like, I think the only obstacle is, is like, am I just jealous that like you get to have an opportunity that I don't? Don't I want the best for you? I mean, it's such an, like a trip to the ego. I think like if we were dating, I would say, Go. But because we're married, I would say, stay. I mean, really, like, what's the dividing factor? You shouldn't go because what? Because that will put something, a burden on me. You shouldn't go because you get to have fun and I don't. You get to go because what? I think it's so interesting that as soon as we put a caveat on something, because we're married, would say, oh, there's a stipulation versus, oh, I want you to have this experience because it's really beautiful and I want the best for you. Yeah, and just to to continue to play with that that thought about I want the best for you. You know, I remember a, a really painful moment in our relationship where where we were talking about fantasies and sexual fantasies. And of course, when you get into those kind of that kind of terrain, it's just such dicey territory, especially if you've never shared it with with others. Or my heart rate's already going up right now. <laughs> All right, you're getting spicy now, folks. And, and and you know, there's this this real sense when you're talking about this that you're you're pushing into an edge because we don't talk about these things as as relationships. Oh my God, you you know, most people try their best to hide these thoughts. This isn't just a passing curiosity. This is like, okay, I've thought about this. This is a nice thought I've sat with. So we're talking about these things and you end up sharing a, a fantasy that you had had about someone I I knew. I knew who this person was. And, and it brought up this kind of jealousy in me uh, about a, a real a real silly passing fantasy, but I allowed myself to go into it really fully to feel that sense of jealousy. 
So I, I, I asked myself, you know, um, okay, what am I really jealous of? I tried to think, what was the plausible thing I was jealous of? And I thought, well, she could start talking to him. Oh, okay, yeah, oh, big jealousy comes up there. Really don't like that thought. Her talking to him, that feels very threatening. Well, why? What could happen? I, I allow myself to think that thought too. Oh, she could really like it. She could like talking to him. She could be turned on by that conversation and drawn to it and attracted to it and talk to him even more. And a, a relationship, an emotional relationship might form, and that would be fundamentally terrifying. Okay. Okay. And then what? Well, a line could get crossed. You know, a rendezvous in a parking lot somewhere. Or, you know, they meet up in Tijuana or wherever people meet up these days. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe somewhere different. <laughs> and, and, oh, things could get out of hand. Decisions could get made in a pinch. And, and they could be intimate. They could become lovers. And then I felt crushed. I mean, like, you know, my soul felt really, really crushed in that moment. And then I thought, and then what? Like, what would happen then? Like, realistically, what would, ha- what would be even worse than that? Let's make it even worse. Right? It's already bad. Go all the way. Yeah. And, oh, she could leave me for him. She could leave me. She could actually walk away. And that was like the most crushing thought. That was just devastating to me. This idea of you walking away, choosing this other person. And then I thought, is there anything even more devastating than that? Anything even worse than that that I'm actually afraid of? And then it hit me. It was this vision of seeing our youngest son reaching up his arms and calling this person dad and seeing you smile and be happy. And seeing this very idyllic vision of familial happiness that I wasn't a part of. And that would be the most devastating thing in the world. And then I caught my breath to see you happy. To see our son happy. And that's when it hit me. I wanted you happy. Oh my God. I wanted our son to be happy. If all these things played out just as I had just thought them through, would I want our son to be miserable? Well, no, I, I'd want him to be profoundly cared for. And then I thought, oh my God, well, I would want her to feel loved. I would want her to feel seen. I wouldn't want her to be miserable. I would want her to be. And so that happiness that I was so terrified of, that I wasn't a part of, was in the end the very thing that I could acknowledge I actually did want for you. And I was able to then reverse out of that moment and come all the way back and go, I wish you happiness. I wish you peace. I wish you love. I wish you goodwill. I don't own you. I don't own you. Yeah. And for those of you who can't see, I have tears just streaming down my face with that story because In the end, that is love. And love is 
generosity and love does not hold us in a way that is not free to us. And that is a gift. That is not just a wedding. And I believe that's beyond marriage and what we know and our constructs of that. I think that's really what's possible when we get outside of ownership and shoulds and ought tos and woulds. Love is really expansive and sometimes really terrifying. As you're telling that story, my heart is welling up with all the emotions that run the gamut. And it's so beautiful when our hands can be open like that. And it takes so much courage. You know, we often think, shake our finger at each other. You're not the person (laughs) that I committed to on that day and that year. Boy, am I glad that you and I are not those same people. I think we're talking about marriage and we've been talking about how culture defines marriage, how different cultures define marriage, how human civilization and perhaps even primal and more instinctive parts of our humanity have defined marriage, all kinds of different ways of thinking about it. There's no one right way to think about it. And today, of course, we stand at this interesting crossroads where, you know, we don't necessarily need marriage to be the thing that maybe our ancestors needed it. or Maybe even people 25, 30, 40 years ago needed it to be. We stand at a place where we get to define it in new and interesting ways. But there is something fundamental that feels like it's a part of this new vision of what it means when people have long-term union. And I think it's actually just very old, right? If we, if we read words from 2,000 years ago, words that shaped our faith tradition, but I think are a part of the very fabric of Western civilization that form a kind of fundamental understanding about love and commitment. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. It is not resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I will know fully, even as I am being fully known and seen. And now faith and hope and love remain. Three things, but the greatest of these is love. I would say love wins. Yeah. What is marriage? I'm still figuring that out, but I'm glad to be doing it with you. Right back at you, babe. Thank you for listening to this episode of Love Like Hell. We appreciate your support so much. Listen, would you do us a small favor? If you love the show, will you leave a fabulous five-star review? And don't forget to share this with all your friends. Okay. Well, until next week, I'm Rainier. And I'm Christy. Live like mad and love Love like like hell. hell.
I like how that that was my signature. Uh, 